Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday, January the 7th. Hope you're all staying safe out there on the roads here today. It has been a bit of a snowy one out there over the last couple of days, and we have taken several calls in the newsroom here this morning about issues on the road, whether it comes to those icy conditions or just accumulation in general, but it has uh, definitely wreaked some havoc on this morning's commute. I uh, heard about some people on Columbia having some difficulty getting up the hill, so uh, definitely make sure you take your time. Give yourself extra time if you are planning to travel anywhere here this morning and uh, maybe avoid it if you can but before we get too deep into anything else here on the show i thought since it is sort of a, a big weather day here in kamloops i wanted to to get right into the meat of things here so i'm joined now by environment canada meteorologist doug lundquist doug thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on here today good morning jeff so what, what can you tell me about the situation as it stands right now in Kamloops? I mean, just how much snow have we seen here in the last, uh, you know, 24 hours or so? Um, you know, I know it kind of differs depending on where you live here in the city, but um, just in a general sense, I mean, what have you guys noticed at Environment Canada? Yeah, we have a station at the airport there that showed a, a snow depth increase of about 7 centimeters, and that's down right at the valley in the airport. So uh, I also checked some of the highway stations heading south, and Helmer looks like it got about 5, uh, Penask 11, and Coquihalla Summit 22. So it's from that range, maybe 7 in the valley, 5 to 7, and then as you go higher, a little bit more, especially in the passes. Yeah, so obviously a... Uh, uh quite a bit there depending on where you are, are heading and there's uh you know it's going to be difficult to get through some places as a result of all this snow um i mean is this going to let up i mean what are we looking at here in terms of the this system is it going to just kind of hang around here for a little while what are we looking at here as we head uh, you know throughout the day here on tuesday and into wednesday yeah, it looks like the system is stalled and going to hang around for longer than we originally expected into Wednesday. Uh, I see the radar looking east towards Rogers Pass. It looked pretty nasty there. There's still probably some heavy wet snow or snow coming down towards Rogers Pass there, uh, even Salmon Arm. And uh, for us in the Kamloops area, what we're looking at is perhaps the temperature rising enough that we might get a bit of a break. So maybe this afternoon there'll be a short break there where we'll get turnover to showers or flurries but then we're having snow expected to start again uh, overnight so that break is in the latter half of the day and the coquihalla probably will pick above zero so i see the temperature there is just lying right around zero so this may be the one break that we have and it's not a long one basically once the, the snow has stopped here in the passes maybe or gone over terrain anyway at coquihalla summit you might have the evening or yeah. the afternoon. Yeah, so I'm just looking at the forecast here in front of me. So tonight, you know, periods of snow, high of, or low of one degree. Tomorrow, uh, pretty much the exact same scenario, periods of snow and a high of one yeah. degree. So, I mean, with that in mind, do you have any idea how much more we could be expecting in terms of snow at this time? Is there any uh, guess that uh, you could put on the table right now? Yeah, it's difficult in the valley because it's so heavy and wet, but it could be another five centimeters in some parts down in the valley bottom. I'd say over the high train in the passes, another 10 to 15 with a bit of break, like I said. So that snow will come mainly tonight and through the day tomorrow in the passes, uh, a little bit this morning as well. So uh, definitely messy over the next 36 hours. And the temperature down in the valley at Kamloops is minus two, which is colder than Coquihalla Summit. And that has me concerned because it's a, a perfect temperature to make conditions pretty slick 
Yeah, yeah, and like I was saying with those, you know, temperatures looking above zero, I mean, high of four today, uh, low of one overnight, yeah. high of one tomorrow, I mean, that has potential for all of the snow to, to at least melt a little bit, right, and then and then freeze up with uh, tomorrow night minus eight. I mean, this this could be some, some pretty dangerous driving here over the next while. Right, and a nasty mess if we don't clean it up in time, right? There could be some really na- bumpy ridges, and it certainly isn't a pleasant situation for the next couple of days. So if we can kind of get things under control today and tonight, then hopefully we go into that little weak Arctic front that's coming for us Wednesday night into Thursday in the right place. And that cold air is going to set us up for another storm that we're going to have on Thursday night into Saturday. So probably focused really on Friday and another dump of snow. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, like tomorrow night, minus 8, and it looks like uh, some cloudy periods, so, uh, you know, that snow is starting yeah. to taper off Wednesday night into Thursday and through the day of Thursday, and then Thursday night, it, it's just sort of uh, history it repeating itself, it looks like, right? Absolutely, yeah. So we have another. This one's actually more interesting in the sense that it's going to start colder. So we won't get that heavy, wet snow that we had in the in the valley bottom and in some locations. It'll be more of a probably a drier snow. Uh, it does get close to zero. We're forecasting close to a high of zero on Friday, so there might be some wetness with it. But another definite nasty period there. It could range from uh, last from Thursday night all the way through to Saturday. Uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, do you know where these systems are, are coming from and, and sort of what's causing, uh, you know, these big dumps of snow? And it looks like they're just sort of uh, hanging around. You know, they're not moving very quickly. Yeah, what it is is we have Arctic air to the north. So in the peace in the central interior, it's colder. And Pacific air moving in, so systems moving in from the west. And this collision is causing the snow that we have right now. Uh, the problem is after the next system that we have on Friday to Saturday, Thursday night to Saturday, that's going to move on by into Alberta, and then it's going to leave nothing in its wake, which will allow Arctic air to blast down over us, and we'll probably see temperatures into the minus double digits for overnight lows and barely recovering into single digits for highs starting as early as Sunday and into early next week. So could be the coldest part of winter here coming up. Well, you know what, If you when we're talking about the coldest part of winter, I guess, uh, you know, looking at last year, we had that polar vortex in February, I believe it was, and that was a, a pretty cold stint, so maybe we'll get it a little bit earlier, and then we can uh, be done with it a little bit earlier, and, and then maybe uh, have a nice smooth end to winter. At least that's, uh, that's what I'll be hoping for anyways. Well, I have a story about that. I did look at the long-range forecast, so the three-month seasonal forecast for the uh, January, February, and March, and of all of Canada, the only place that has a high probability of below average temperature, it's at least southern BC. <laughs> so, uh, and it's like a, I think I'm looking at a greater than 50% chance. That leaves only uh, 50% chance for near average or above. So, mm, maybe, let's hope you're right on that <laughs> one, but there's, st- there's still a ways to go. All right, well, just for context then, just since you brought it up, do you have any idea sort of what the average would be looking like, say, for the month of February? Like, just how cold exactly are we talking? We, yeah, I don't have numbers for that. Like, okay. so we usually hover in February just around about the zero mark. So if we're below average, it would be... And usually what happens to get below average is we need to be in Arctic air. So we'll have periods where it's close to average or slightly above average, maybe just a little bit above zero, and then periods where it's well below zero, so in the minus single digits and overnight lows in the minus double digits. That being said, it's just how long the really cold air lasts over us. So I think what it means is that we'll see some of these periods where we get Arctic air throughout the next few months.
All right. Well, uh, hopefully it's uh, more on the positive side and, and things don't get too nasty, but it looks like that could be the case here for the next week. So definitely some good information here, Doug. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time to fill us in on sort of what we've seen and what we can expect here moving forward. I think it's uh, important for everybody to make sure they plan their commutes accordingly and, uh, yeah, just are aware of the weather. It is that time of year where you need to be uh, extra cautious of, of what's taking place here in the system. So thanks so much for taking the time, Doug. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Stay oh, safe. Yeah, you too. That was uh, Environment Canada meteorologist Doug Lundquist just filling us in on that weather. So like he had said, you know, we've seen quite a bit of snow, about seven centimeters here at the airport uh, overnight in Kamloops, so, uh, and about a couple centimeters here downtown. So we've seen some varying degrees of just accumulation in general, but it has caused some very slippery conditions out there. We've heard of accidents on the Halston. We've uh, heard of people, you know, having some difficulty getting up the hills um, here downtown as well. So just uh, take your time, be extra careful. Hopefully you got snow tires on those vehicles because uh, it looks like it might be difficult to get up and down the terrain here today uh, if you are not prepared. Well, uh, i got some other stuff coming up on the show here today. Um, I'm also going to be talking about the situation at the U.S. border. A number of Iranians have had issues when uh, crossing into the states, even if they are U.S. citizens. So uh, what is the situation as it stands now? Well, I'll be talking with um, an immigration lawyer based out of B.C. who has uh, experienced some of the situation firsthand, so that will be coming up at around the 35-minute mark. Uh, edibles are rolling out across BC. They were legal here in October when it was said that it would take about three months for products to get that Health Canada approval. Well, that three months has now passed. So what's the situation as it stands now? Well, I'll be talking with the BC Liquor Distribution Branch at around the 50-minute mark today. And coming up next, Australia is continuing to burn. Yes, I'm sure many people are familiar with the situation in Australia right now. Um, fires wreaking havoc across the country. So I'll be joined by TRU's Director of Environment and Sustainability after the break. So Please stick around. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Tuesday, and thanks for tuning in. Many here, I'm sure, are complaining about the weather in the Kamloops area right now. You know, the snow that we have had to deal with. But those in Australia are dealing with, uh, you know, a little bit of a worse scenario right now. Fires continuing to burn. A total of 24 people have died nationwide in Australia. Uh, in the state of uh, New South Wales, more than 2,000 homes have been destroyed or damaged. Thousands forced to evacuate. And uh, state and federal authorities continue to struggle to contain the massive blazes, even with firefighting assistance from other countries, including us here in Canada. Here to discuss what is happening on the island now is Thompson Rivers University's Director of Environment and Sustainability, Jim Johnson. Jim, thanks so much for coming in. Morning, Jeff. So just first off, I mean, what are your sort of initial overall thoughts on what is currently happening? I know it's sort of a really general question, but like I had you in here in the summer and we were talking about the situation then in the Amazon at that point in time, which was a very concerning situation. But, you know, from what I'm reading now, Australia's fires have burned more than twice as much land as those summer blazes in the Amazon. I mean, is this one of the worst fire situations that you, you can think of? It certainly is, and you know, historically, of course, Australia's had drought periods before where they've had big cycles in 74 and 84 and even back in the 30s, but this seems to be slightly different in just in terms of the vastness and the, all the regions involved. Yeah, and it just seems like a real, you know, like I said, a devastating situation. I mean, like, we had a couple of rough seasons here in B.C. and, and Kamloops, you know, two and three years ago, but, you know, those events almost seem like child's play in comparison. I mean, you see some of the pictures, and it's hard to see very far in front of you. I mean, uh, just can you even fathom or imagine what it would be like to, to live there at this point in time? I mean, I guess we sort of had a, a bit of a snap 
snapshot here in BC, like I said, two and three years ago, but uh, I, I still feel like it's not really comparable. Yeah, you, you, some of the numbers are staggering just in terms of the size. You know, we're talking about roughly one and a half times the size of Vancouver Island has already burned. So that kind of puts it into context a bit. Uh, half a billion animals have been uh, destroyed. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, conservationists down there are talking about actually some ex uh, species being actually extinct in certain regions where their, their numbers were small. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty horrible to hear. And half a billion, I can't even... Uh, that number is just hard to even imagine in your brain, let alone actually think about the fact that it has really happened. Um, I mean, when you're looking at, at stuff like that, and, you know, we see the, the pictures of people, you know, forcing koala bears to drink out of their water bottles because, you know, the eucalyptus plant isn't readily available and things like that now. I mean, do you think this is going to really be like a permanent change almost in the ecosystem in Australia as a result of this? I mean, can this really be fully recovered from? Yeah, again, you know, the conservationists down there are talking about setting, setting some species back, you know, decades and again, some species becoming extinct because when the fires are over, and I think we have to remember it's just the start of their summer mm -hmm. there, it's basically the start of their July, essentially. And so we've got another, or they've got another six weeks to, to endure. So uh, at the end of that, then a lot of the species have no habitat left that rely on certain tree species, etc. So there's going to be a long, long struggle for, for many species. So, I mean, when we're looking at things like that, I mean, is it going to take a, I mean, it's not just going to come naturally, I wouldn't think. There's going to have to be quite a bit of human um, inter interaction or interference, I guess, not interference, but, you know, to help things progress properly, um, this, yeah, decades, I guess, is what you're saying is, is potentially the, the time frame we're looking to recover from this. And, um, I mean, we're talking now, like you had said, it's only July for them really right now. Uh, they saw some pictures or some videos yesterday of, of people, you know, seeing some rain come down and they were cheering in the streets, but uh, from all indications, that's going to be very short-lived and these fires are going to continue to burn for months. So um, with that in mind, I mean, we're talking decades. I mean, do you, th do you think that this situation could even change uh, for the worse, you know, in the next little while as we look at these fires, they continue to spread and they continue to burn? Certainly, um, it, it seems like the the, the temperatures are, are quite high, and so we'll we'll see. You know, weather can change things quite quickly. Of course, if they do get some rain, uh, let's hope for that. But um, I think the the other notion is that you know this is you know the last ten years things have got quite a bit warmer. In the last hundred years, the ambient average temperature has gone up by a degree, and some places this year that average is up to three times or three degrees, uh, what it typically is. So you have many more days above 35 degrees and many more days above 40 degrees than typical. And so uh, as we see here when it's 35 degrees and tinder dry, we can only imagine, you know, many, many days of 40 degrees plus what's happening in the bush out there and how dry it's getting. Yeah, and, and I've heard people also say this might be the, the new normal uh, when talking about the fire situation in Australia. I mean, when, when you're talking about recovery from the things that are happening now, I mean, if this is something that we're looking at potentially happening on an annual basis, I guess, does that even, you know, make it possible to ever kind of recover from these kinds of situations or are we just looking at uh, this being sort of a trend when we're talking about you know deaths of animals and and just the whole uh, impact it's had on the human population as well they're having to be displaced mm -hmm. I, I sadly I think it is an indication of, of what's to come and uh, I think that you know if there is any uh, good news story that might come out of this it would be that just it's sort of uh, very eye-opening for a lot of people that might otherwise not uh, react quite as quickly to, to something that, you know, historic or for some that might seem like it's a decades away threat. When we talk about climate change, it's like, it's you know, for some, especially in Australia right now, it's happening front and center, and so that might 
be a wake-up call for the rest of us and, and really think about our emissions. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the key stats is when we're talking about just those half a billion animals that are gone. I think when you hear a number like that, and a lot of people seem to have more sympathy when it comes to you know animals for whatever reason, it seems to trigger people's emotions a little bit more sometimes than compared to what happens to humans. So when looking at that and just sort of the devastation, half a billion, and there's still months potentially left of these fires, uh, hopefully that uh, really, you know, triggers in people's minds that that changes need to be made um i guess we we can probably learn from that here too in bc i would think right when we're looking at the situation there and uh things are only getting worse there we could probably learn you know how to deal with our own forest fire situations as well as a result i mean do, do you see some some uh, learning opportunities here i guess as well i certainly do and I, I think some some more controlled burning might be in order to you know anticipate uh, if we have a, a three or four year dry spell and you know lot less snow and less rain and we have a tinder dry forest we can only imagine what it would look like here if we had uh, you know an anomalous uh, summer that was uh, you know particularly hot what would happen we have a lot more fuel than australia does you know we have a lot more rain of course but uh, if we have conditions that, that would lead to a uh, few dry years uh, it would be uh, really catastrophic yeah um and just i guess can you just speak here i got about uh, 30 seconds left here and and i know that you've had some uh, role i believe on the air quality uh, board or whatever the, the the name is i just just how bad is this when it comes to uh, you know just people's ability to to, to breathe. I mean, we're talking about people getting masks and things like that now. Um, is that something that, uh, you know, you see as sort of the way of the future for, for people here moving forward? I mean, just the air quality seems to be, uh, you know, taking real hits the more and more that these kinds of events happen. Certainly, and I, I think for a lot of people that have compromised uh, uh, lungs or, or, you know, different uh, difficulties that related to that, um, there are things that we can do in planning how we design our buildings and homes and having filters and stuff like that. But uh, we can see a lot, pe a lot of people spending time indoors with those types of filters, and uh, less time outside and less time exercising is really a, quite an impact on the quality of life. Yeah, might be something for people to think about when retrofitting their homes, even because uh, it could be coming sooner than later. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Jim, we're out of time, so thanks so much for uh, coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome. That was uh, Jim Gajonson, the director of Environment and Sustainability at uh, TRU. Coming up next, we will be talking about the issues of uh, people from Iran crossing into the U.S. from Canada. I'll be joined by an immigration lawyer after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Tuesday, January 7th. Iranians have reported being harassed by U.S. border officials amid diplomatic tensions following last week's U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Several travelers of Iranian heritage have said they have faced inappropriate questions about their views, and groups have said they were stopped for hours at the Canadian-U.S. border at the weekend, and that, of course, is uh, kind of isolated here to that border between uh, Washington State and Canada. I'm joined now on the line by Washington-based immigration lawyer who has seen some of what is happening firsthand. It is Len Saunders. Len, how are you doing here today? Fine. How are you, Jeff? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for asking. So, yeah, I just want to kind of get a, 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 a rundown of sort of the situation as it stands now. I mean, uh, you had told me yesterday that, uh, you know, you've seen some of what is happening here firsthand when it comes to, uh, you know, when people are trying to cross the border. And, uh, you know, maybe just tell me what you have seen here over the last couple of days um, in terms of just the, the volume of people that are being called in. Sure. So what happened was I was just by chance at the Peace Arch Port of Entry on Saturday afternoon. I've had two clients, Persian Canadians, 
who had been detained for three to four hours when they were entering the U.S. One is a U.S. citizen, and the other one's a green card holder. So they told me what was going on, which I was shocked. And I just happened to be going to the port of entry on another case when I walked in. And the Peace Arch is a large port of entry. It's the largest or biggest uh, west of, of Detroit. It was packed inside with Persians, packed. And it's interesting because, you know, it's been busy over the Christmas holidays, and I know CBP had made some press release saying, you know, it was just busy in there because of the time. I'd been in there quite frequently over the holidays on other cases, and I had never seen one group of individuals in, in, in there being questioned. And so what happened was, was that, you know, I asked one of the officers what was going on, and he mentioned that anyone who was born in Iran who was coming through the port of entry, whether they were Canadian, American, or maybe a landed immigrant in Canada from Iran with, um, with a visitor visa, they were automatically being sent inside, detained, and vetted all the way up to the port directors. So the only one who had the authority to admit these individuals on an individual basis was the port director. So I've never seen that before. I've been practicing in Blaine for almost 20 years. I've never seen one group of individuals targeted and basically detained while questioned for some sort of reason. And when we're talking about being detained, I mean, just how long are some of these groups and some of these people having to spend at the, at the border, you know, waiting to be questioned and, um, you know, just trying to get home? I mean, do you have any ideas sort of what some of these time frames people have been experiencing are? Both of my clients were detained in excess of four hours. I think that's the minimum. I've heard of other people being there for eight to 10 to 12 hours. What's interesting was, was that my American client, she was texting me while she was in there telling me what was going on. And at one point she asked to leave. She just said, I just, I'm going to go back up to Canada. She'd gone up there for Christmas and she said, I'm going to try the next day. And the officer said, you're not permitted to leave. I've never seen that happen to an American citizen. Yeah, that's uh, that seems odd that they couldn't, uh, you know, head back north. Um, and one of the things too that I found interesting when we were kind of chatting about this yesterday was uh, this seems to be sort of a situation that. Um, you know, is not happening really across the border. I, I, you know, I would have thought, you know, I understand sort of why, you know, the tensions would be higher when talking about people who are born in Iran. And, uh, you know, you know I, I get it. But at the same point in time, I would think that with that being the case, this would be a border-wide issue. Yet it seems to be more isolated here towards Washington State. Well, and that's what I initially thought, like when they did the Muslim seven-country travel ban a couple years ago, all the ports of entry were enforcing that and denying visas or at least revoking them. When this happened on Saturday, I expected to see it nationwide. I expected to hear cases from out east and, you know, JFK and LAX and all the ports of entry. What became clear after a day or two was it was only happening here. And so that's kind of the million-dollar question. Why is it not happening at other ports of entry if it's happening here? It seems to be an isolated incident, which is very, very strange. Yeah, and I assume based on that answer that you don't really have any idea as to why that would be the case. Well, at first I figured, well, maybe, maybe like, you know, some of the smaller ports like Pembina, North Dakota, there's not a lot of Persians coming through because there's a huge Persian population in Vancouver, but there's also a large Persian population in Toronto. So if it's happening in Vancouver at the borders, why isn't it happening in Buffalo and other upstate New York ports of entry? That's what's, what's weird here. 
Now, when it is happening here, and, and you know, you've seen some of what's happened firsthand, you had a couple of clients that were dealing with this exact situation. Um, you know, it seems like everything, although taking a, a lot of time, very time consuming and, and a huge annoyance for people who are just trying to get home after the holidays, um, you know, have you heard of any situations that have maybe uh, escalated beyond just sort of the, the questioning and the, the uh, standard taking amount, a long amount of time to get across? I mean, have things escalated beyond that? Uh, have, you, have you heard of anything? Well, it's interesting because I have not heard from any individuals who are actually denied entry um, or arrested. What it was was kind of a dragnet of basically extreme vetting, right? So they're basically extreme vetting all of these Iranian-born Canadians or Americans, but I don't think anything ever came of it. So it seems to be such a colossal waste of time. And it's interesting because these are Persians who don't want to be in in Iran. They've left. They don't support the regime that's there. So these are not people who are going to be, you know, people who are security risks to the United States. So it seems to be a colossal waste of time, especially during the holiday season. Why do it, you know, when the borders they know are really busy right now and put all these people inside for extra interrogation? And when you're looking at, you know, these specific types of scenarios, uh, you know, when, when people are being detained or pulled aside based on the fact of, of where they're born, um, I mean, is there really anything anyone can do when preparing to cross the border? You know, if I was born in Iran um, and I wanted to kind of speed things up and be ready to answer any and all questions and make sure I have my documentation, would any of that even matter just because you are being flagged based on where you're from? Well, when it first started... In, um, on Saturday, I was telling people, avoid all ports of entry if you're Persian. Just stay in Canada. Don't come down unless you want to be scrutinized for 8 to 10 hours. Now that the full story is getting out that it seems to be isolated to Peace Arch, I'm telling Persians just avoid Peace Arch because other ports of entry don't seem to be doing the same scrutiny. Yeah, so that's probably um, good advice, I guess, for for anyone who is planning to cross the border. Is that uh, you know there there are different uh, different areas that might have uh, better luck when trying to get across a little bit quicker than others. Um, has the situation changed at all over the last couple of days? Because I know this sort of uh, like you had mentioned on the weekend, sort of was a, a bigger story on Saturday and then into Sunday. Um, have things led up at all here now that we're into Tuesday? Well, I think what's happened is is that a lot of people in the Persian community have got the word out through Facebook and other social media, plus all the all the media attention through your colleagues. So I think many Persians are avoiding the port of entry. That's what happened with the travel ban. When the travel ban happened a few years ago for these seven Muslim countries, on Saturday it was packed of people having their visas revoked. The next day, there was, there was nobody in there because word got out, so they avoided it. So my feeling is most Persians are avoiding the ports of entry until some clarity is sorted out on the situation. Well, there's uh, definitely a lot of interesting stories that are uh, kind of coming up as a result of this, and uh, I'm glad to have you come on and kind of uh, share what you have seen firsthand. Um, anything else that you want to add here, Len, before I let you go? No, it'll just be interesting to see why Peace Arch did this, because there's supposed to be a even application of immigration law. So I'm kind of, you know, on pins and needles trying to figure out why and here if there's an explanation of why Peace Arch has done this. Yeah, hopefully there is an explanation, because I would think there's got to be some sort of reasoning behind this, and uh, hopefully we do get to find out exactly what it is, because I will be interested to find that out as well. Thanks so much for taking the time, Len. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. You as well. That was uh, immigration lawyer based out of Washington, Len Saunders. So, uh, yeah, as a result of this, I mean, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is now defending that drone strike that killed Iran's top military uh, commander. Um, he says that uh, there were multiple pieces of information that led to the action, including uh, you know, massacres in Syria, some destruction in Lebanon and Iraq, uh, a terror campaign in the region, and the death of an American civilian contractor. So Pompeo uh, also commented on suggestions that the late general was on a diplomatic mission in Iraq uh, when the strike occurred. Is there any history that would indicate that it was remotely possible that this kind gentleman, this diplomat of great order, Qasem Soleimani, had traveled to Baghdad for the idea of conducting a peace mission? I, I, I made you reporters laugh this morning. That's fantastic. So, yeah, Pompeo insisting the killing of the, the military commander was the right decision, and President Donald Trump had an entirely legal and appropriate reaction to Iran's threats. Meanwhile, though, Britain's defense secretary is urging Iranian leaders not to retaliate for the recent killing of their top general by the U.S. So the situation uh, does remain rather tense. Uh, we'll see if the, cha the, the situation changes at the border for those trying to get back home uh, from Canada into the U.S., uh, particularly for those who are uh, of some form of Persian descent, as, as Len was saying. So, uh, yeah, going to be an interesting story to follow. And see how this uh, this progresses uh yeah definitely a, a big story here uh, on the world stage uh coming up after the break uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about edibles and the situation as it stands here in british columbia when talking about uh, consuming your cannabis as opposed to smoking it i'll be talking with uh, bcldb after this the voice of your community radio nl 610 a.m news talk and radio nl.com here's jeff andreas hello and welcome back to the show here on tuesday thanks for tuning in uh, when it comes to cannabis, the flower itself has been legal in the country for about 15 months now, and smoking alternatives have slowly started to become available in the market. You know, we're talking about topical creams and butters, and of course your edibles like cookies and brownies and suckers or whatever else you can imagine. Uh, they were legal in Canada as of this past October, but uh, that just kick-started the process for suppliers to submit their products to Health Canada for approval. Well, from what I understood, it would take about three months to get that approval, so some stores have now since started rolling out some of these alternatives, as that uh, three-month time period has passed. I'm joined now by BC Liquor Distribution Branch spokesperson Viviana Zanaco. Viviana, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. So uh, maybe just to start, can you relay this process and how it has gone here in BC so far when talking about the rollout of edible products? I mean, uh, you know, we've been kind of anticipating this for some time and it's sort of starting to see that uh, that, that process roll out. These products are starting to hit some of the shelves here in the province. Um, you know, how, how have things gone so far? Has it been pretty smooth? It's been, uh, I think a lot, there's been a lot of anticipation. This is the biggest public policy change in, in decades. And so uh, a lot of people who've been in, um, taking part in cannabis consumption for a while, we're just looking forward to uh, uh, being part of a legal market. And we've just always been saying, and the, and the licensed producers have been saying, you know, it's going to take a little while for everybody to get up to speed and production to be where it should be. So uh, while uh, we did a product call back in August and had 260 individual products that people came forward and said, I want to make this edible. I want to make this extract. And so we registered them all. And uh, and slowly, uh, I think the licensed producers, uh, by the time they had to have it tested and approved and all that by Health Canada, um, their expectation of hitting the market uh, before Christmas kind of um, ramped down. So we had some things, uh, and we still hope to have more. Uh, right now we have chocolates and gummies, um, some topicals and mints. They hit the stores. 
uh, in some cases before Christmas. So that was uh, that was our goal. Uh, again, licensed producers, um, it's up to them to have it for us. So uh, we have products like uh, carbonated and non-carbonated drinks, teas, oils, powders, um, more chocolates, uh, vapes, and cartridges. There's, we have a few of those. Uh, shatter, hash, uh, topicals like... Um, that are applied to the hair or skin or nails, those kinds of things are also coming uh, soon. But it's going to be slowly, um, all these licensed producers are trying to meet a, a, a demanded, a pent-up demand across the, the country. And so we've been just trying to manage people's expectations. This is going to take a, a little while to roll out. Uh, probably won't see, we'll see drinks this month, but we probably won't see more, um, a bigger range of edibles uh, over the next coming weeks. Yeah, so quite a quite a range of different products there that you uh, mm-hmm. listed off there. So I'm sure there's a lot of different um, you know things to to look for when when Health Canada is testing these products. I mean, you know, obviously a, a brownie is a lot different than a soft drink or or uh, you know a butter or something along those lines. So a lot of different uh, products that people are looking at. So just from that, I mean, you mentioned that also, some. Sorry, pro- Jeff. Can I just interrupt you? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to also point out that there's like a um, it, you have to make it shelf stable, which is I think a big a very big challenge that licensed producers are facing because we can't. Ship, uh, ship uh, refrigerated products, so uh, that's that's a challenge for them because before you know we could keep brownies in a refrigerator in a store, but we can't do that anymore. So there's there's that also that we're challenged by. Hmm. Never even would have thought of that as being an issue. I know. Um, I know. So just with that in mind, I guess you know because we know um, you know when 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 the cannabis first became legal, there was uh, some issues when it came to supply and just what was actually available to the public. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of that problem had to do with uh, you know just a, a lack of of uh, brick and mortar locations for people to actually go in and buy products and that seems to be less of an issue here here now moving into 2020 a lot of stores are open and uh, available for people to walk into to buy stuff so i'm just curious if uh, you know have heard any concerns about the potential for uh, a shortage of any of these products yet at this point in time maybe it's too early to say but um you know is, is the the marketplace going to be fairly stocked as as kind of this process moves on and, and things get a little more uh, normal when it comes to these products yeah, I, I, uh, it's it's difficult to say, especially, as I said, licensed producers gave us the indication that they would be able to produce and uh, provide us with this on the wholesale side, and we would supply, of course, all the, the uh, private retailers as well as their public stores. But they, um, it's, it's been slow going. So um, while I, I think there, um, there was kind of like a... a as I said, they're they're struggling to meet um, the shelf shelf stable requirements. Um, they are struggling. There's a couple of licensed producers that have gone bankrupt in the meantime. You know, it's it's a it's a very um, it's going to be stabilized soon. Um, but again, licensed producers are struggling. They're trying to meet. Um, there's a finite number of them. Health Canada is approving more and more. Uh, we we know that the BC government is trying to help licensed producers. Um, perhaps who were operating the illicit market and get them regulated. So um, that's something as as more suppliers come online, I think we'll see um, a steadier um, supply in stores. And that's something that that, uh, we're working towards. Now, you said, uh, you know, you had put out the call for products uh, back in August, and then it was October, Mm -hmm. I believe, when they could start submitting those products to Health Canada for approval. I'm just curious if you're still getting a lot of, uh, you know, people coming forward with new products and trying to get those, uh, you know, on the market are you still seeing a lot of interest at this point in time or has it kind of tapered off over the last six months 
it, it, there's always going to be interest. There's always going to be as licensed producers um, become uh, licensed, there then they they can approach uh, people like us, like the liquor distribution branch and other entities like ours across. Uh, the country and and get their products registered. So again, it's it's a uh, it's a gradual process. It's, it's as they enter, as they get financing, as they um, start production, um, and and they go through the testing. So it's it's been uh, over the past year with, with when we've just had flour, we've had um, uh, LPs added all the time throughout the year. So we expect that to happen with the Edwards side. All right. Uh, anything else that you want to add here before I let you go, Viviana? We're uh, we got about a minute left, so if, if you have anything, I'm uh, I'm at your service. Here. Okay. I just wanted to talk about the safety aspects of using cannabis uh, uh, because we, for a lot of people, especially maybe of my generation, who've never used it or maybe just trying it out, just start low and go slow. It takes a while for edible cannabis to kind of. Uh, take a hold uh, and, and for you to feel effects. Um, combining alcohol and cannabis in some circumstances can um, amplify the effects of to- intoxication and can create other um, um, uh, anxiety and those kinds of things. So just please try not to do that. We just want people to use our products safely and in a responsible way and uh, to enjoy uh, responsibly. Oh, yeah, I've heard many stories where people uh, maybe eat a cookie and are waiting for it to work and say it's not working, and then they eat another one, and then uh, maybe yeah. their day doesn't go quite as planned after that. So definitely exactly. something for we people to totally think about. totally want people to avoid that. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Viviana, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Awesome. That was Viviana Zanaco, spokesperson for the BC Liquor Distribution Branch, talking about edibles and uh, other cannabis products that are hitting the shelves slowly and will be coming more online as time progresses. Like I said, we're about 15 months into legalization now, so we're starting to get uh, a little more normal when it comes to these types of products, but uh, still a ways to go. Well, that about wraps up my show here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, Just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.